I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, producer Jonah here, and welcome to Principle of Charity, where we inject curiosity and generosity back into our conversations on big social issues. This is part two of our conversation with economist and educator Russ Roberts, on whether or not we should care about inequality of wealth. Now, in part one, our host, Emil Sherman, really teased out that question with Russ. So if you missed that, I encourage you to press pause and go back and have a listen, as it will contextualize some of the conversation you're about to hear. For everyone else, here's a quick refresher. Well, my question is, is is the game rigged? Oh, yeah, and of course it is. Yeah, of course it's rigged. I want to, <laughs> But it's here's the point that I, that I would emphasize. Of course it's rigged in the sense that there are many decisions made by public policy, by government, and inherent in some of the economic system that allows some people to get ahead of others. Yeah. What I'm really worried about more than that is whether as a result of those rules and as a result of that system, no one is able to rise except yeah. those who have already risen. Now, Lloyd, on the other hand, is here to extract exactly how Russ approaches disagreement and conflict. Here is Lloyd and Russ. Enjoy. you're a big fan of Adam Smith, um, particularly, I, I think, the, the, you know, his book on the theory of moral sentiments. What could Adam Smith teach us about how to disagree? On this issue? No, just on disagreement. I mean, we have a highly polar, you know, a lot of Western societies are increasingly polarized. Uh, some may argue yeah. because of inequality. Some may argue other factors, social media, whatever, whatever the reasons. But could Adam Smith teach us anything about how to disagree? Is there anything from his theory of moral sentiments that could tell us about how to reduce polarization? Uh, I'd probably lean on both of his books um, to think about this issue. You know, if we think of the most narrow homo economicus uh, type of thinking we were talking about earlier, a lot of the incentives, it's gotten a lot more, I'll say it simply, it's a lot more profitable to be cruel and outraged than it used to be. And so we get more of it. That's a tragedy. Um, we might think about how we might re- change those incentives. Not easy at all, by the way. Mm-hmm. It's partly the result of capitalism and the way the information uh, landscape works in today's world. The internet has supercharged outrage and made it a lot easier for people to be to make a lot of money who uh, who yell a lot. I don't think that's been good. Uh, I'm a capitalist, but I don't think that's been good. And I do think it's the result of very simple incentives and the competitive landscape of information provision. Uh, I think there's some possible ways to improve that. And in that sense, though, I think Adam Smith helps us understand it because he understood the role of incentives and and market forces. But on the the deeper question in his book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, um, 
I, I think it's pretty clear that we know the right way to treat people who don't agree with us, and that's to be respectful of them uh, it, as a starting point. May not be at the ending point, but it should be the starting point. I assume neither, neither of you gentlemen agrees with me on the issues we're talking about today. Exactly. I'm enjoying the conversation. I've had a couple of stray thoughts I hadn't had before. That's a bargain for a mere hour of conversation. Wouldn't it be lovely if we could all enter our conversations with this, mm-hmm. with that level of respect and and optimism and and have our default be, I'm going to respect a person who disagrees with me until it's, pr- it's proven to be uh, the otherwise. But we don't tend to do that in today's world. I'm not suggesting I'm a saint because I've done it with you guys. You invited me and it was a lot easier. Can I just touch on on on, on that last comment of, of you not being a saint? Because I I listened to you and you have a equanimity about you. Um, I mean, this was even on the conversation about envy and you know, you being five foot six and not being envious of tall people, you're not envious of your brother. And I go, wow. I mean, I, I, I mean, it's just like a, the, the, this guy. This guy seriously worked through. What triggers you to be uncharitable? That's a great question. I've hosted a podcast since 2006, and uh, people listen to it. Ask me sometimes how I maintain my equanimity, my pleasantness in the face of people who disagree with me, especially when it's a radical disagreement. And I'm going to tell you the truth: it's not easy. <laughs> It's a bit of an illusion, right? I, I, I have tried to cultivate an equanimity that I don't always feel, and uh, I don't always succeed. There have been a couple episodes of Econ Talk where, after I ended the recording, I was shaking. What what got you? Somebody who treated me with a lack of respect. Somebody who spoke down to me. Somebody who was condescending. Somebody who didn't give me the benefit of the doubt. Jumped to a conclusion about who I am, right. what I believe. And in that situation, I have as visceral an emotional response as as anybody. Uh And what I think being a good podcast host teaches you is to restrain yourself. But there are plenty of times I don't feel, you know, like serene. (laughs) I I have a temper. I'm, you know, life life is just as hard for me as it is, I think, for anyone else. I'm a big fan of the adage, everyone's in a battle, so be kind. I have my own battles. I don't always share them there. You know, I try to keep them uh, below the surface when I'm dealing with people who don't, you know, love me dearly and, and shouldn't be expected to put up with me. So, um, but to be uncharitable, usually I think the main thing that provokes most of us is a lack of respect. Right. Mm-hmm. And when I think about, you know, times in public when I've lost my cool, it's uh, somebody's triggered me with a, with an insult either deliberate or unintended that uh, gets at my core. Mm. And I think we're all somewhat like that, I suspect. I mean, when you look at the rise of populism in different countries, is, is, is part of the, you know, the big generator of that just the fact that the populist can provide people with a sense that they will be respected? Is, is that one of the driving forces of populism? I think it is, I think. You know, there's a, there was a big debate in the United States after 2016. Why did Trump, quote, win? Why did he really win? What was the real reason? It's complicated. Obviously, it's multifaceted. It's it's not just any one thing. But it's clear to me exactly what you said. I think he gave voice to some people who felt they didn't had lost their voice. I think it's, uh, you know, I, 
I like to quote Adam Smith's line, man naturally desires not only to be loved, but to be lovely. Mm-hmm. Man, meaning human beings, written, written in 1759, naturally desires, meaning hardwired, not only to be loved, love meaning praised, honored, admired, but to be lovely, meaning to be praiseworthy, worthy of respect. These are what give our lives comfort. This is what I think most of us care about once we have satisfied our most basic needs. We want to matter. We want people to give us the respect we hope we're entitled to, and we want to earn it honestly. That's what Adam Smith was saying. It's interesting. It's less less of a problem in, in, in many countries that, that are not as wealthy, but certainly in the wealthiest of countries, we have this irony of of material abundance and often a lack of feeling of, of respect and connection, belonging. Yeah. These were all crucial to the human the human being. And, and as a result, we turn to places we can find that, which mm. are tribes. We find a tribe. If, if, I, if I can find a tribe that I can belong to, I'll join it. And that's, you know, people say to me, I don't like that word. I don't like tribalism. I said, you can like it or not like it. It's who we are. It's how we're wired. Russ, on the on, on the tribe, part of your tribe, as I would understand, is is the tribe of economists. One of the things that you know, and and, and we start this podcast with principle of charities about seeking the truth, not winning the fight. But to your point, it's not just about seeking the truth. In fact, it's about how you seek the truth, how you go about seeking that in a respectful way, and. I am going to stereotype a little, so please, you know, uh, bear with me. But often when I hear economists, I hear a confidence uh, in the way they speak, in their predictions, in their forecasting um, about the economy, about inflation. And at the back of my mind, you know, I have that Carl Sagan statement that the vast majority of ideas are simply wrong. I have this sort of the Philip Tetlock stuff that you're probably familiar with on forecasting and and how poor forecasts are, and I'm wondering, do economists is there is there any part of the discipline that ever goes back to the forecast, uh, whether it's in academia or or, or or economists like yourself who in the public domain and go, you know what I'm going to look at all my forecasts over the last ten years and and I'm actually going to look at whether they were right or wrong. So that I build a little bit of humility in myself. Is that happening? Will it ever happen? What's going on here? Well, first of all, my tribe of economists, I, I got put outside the camp a while ago. <laughs> I'm not allowed into the center of camp all the time. No, we're not very accountable and we don't hold ourselves accountable. I, I would say that I think it's a terrible mistake to look for economists to forecast the future. But that's what people like and they pay for it. And so economists provide, respond to that demand with their own supply of mediocre and inaccurate predictions. And um, a wise person says, ah, that's not so reliable. It's what they have an incentive to do is to predict the future. And maybe it's a discipline that's not so good at predicting the future. You know, if if you say to me, uh, I want to land a a spacecraft on on the moon on... um, on January 3rd, 2027, I bet a physicist is pretty good at predicting where that where the moon's going to be on that day, and uh, I'd rely on it. If you ask an economist to predict where the economy is going to be on January 3rd, 2027, I'd run for the hills. 
That, the and, funny and yet part they of it is continue with their predictions. Happy to make it. When people call me, when the media calls me and says, you know, what's going to happen to the dollar? And I always say, I have no idea. And of course, they hang up. <laughs> so they hang up. Yep. That's Fair not enough. useful to them. You know, if, they, if, they, if I want to get called back, I make a prediction. Whether it's accurate isn't so important. And I, and I do think, you know, there's a, there's a wonderful article uh, by Ed Lemer, uh, which I've interviewed him about. It's called, it's called Let's Take the Con Out of Econometrics. Mm. Econometrics is the science of the application of statistics to economic questions. It's applied mm. statistics. Mm. And he argued it's not as scientific as we like to pretend it is. And he was right. It didn't make a big impact. <laughs> It was written decades ago, and people would just rather not think about it. Just on that subject, when you think, and, and you know, you being an educationist now, and part of the principle of charity is the ability to learn to change one's view. When you think of economists, and let's take that the assumption that they have a strong view that they're smart, got an education, they you know highly literate, they've good at maths, a whole batch of things, been to top universities, whatever it is, they come out feeling smart. And you as an educationist, do you think that feeling smart actually increases your ability to learn or limits it? That's a very deep question. And there's a proverb that Nassim Nicholas Taleb likes to quote, the farther from the shore, the deeper the ocean. Uh, I like that proverb. I think the more you learn, if you're an honest person, you realize how little you know. And the amount you don't know seems to get bigger as you get wiser. I'm not sure that's a universally held view. (laughs) So (laughs) that's why I like your question. I, I think there are smart people who understand the limitations of their of their knowledge and their intelligence. And then there are smart people who do not. And they simply get more and more confident as the, as they get older. Uh, it's like, you know, I've got a hammer. Where's the, where are the nails? Let me look around. I'll see. So I'll find some. Uh, and I, you know, obviously raw brain power is uh, wildly overrated. Um, it's not the same as wisdom. It's not the same as experience. It's not the same as grit. There's a lot of things that are good to have in life besides a high IQ or a big brain. And of course, not everybody uses their brain thoughtfully. Um, and your point, your question, which I love, is that you could argue that the bigger your brain, the harder it is to use it thoughtfully, even though it's got all this capacity. Mm-hmm. And I think you're onto something. I think mm-hmm. we all struggle with hubris, with overconfidence, with confirmation bias. Uh, I know I do. Um, I think it's a human problem. It's a great question. Part of the difficulty, I think, when we argue, when we debate um, to reduce conflict is learning how to do it better. Maybe a question to you is, why, why do we like to see ourselves you know, as we do, but not as others see us? I mean, what is the story with our blind spots? Well, I think you're getting at a reason that I don't like debate. And I do like conversation. Debate's about winning. Conversation's about exploration and learning, or should be. Could be about seducing the other person intellectually, emotionally, romantically. But often it's just, it's a dance. Dancing is fun. And a good conversation should explore different things. And I think that's part of what we're doing here today. I love it. But a lot of people want to win, right? 
they want to win. They want to crush the other person. Uh, they're not so interested in learning anything. You know, you mentioned seeking the truth. I think most of us, it's not so, it's not a goal. It's a mm. lovely goal, but that's not most of us. We don't have a goal like that. We want to win. We want to feel good about ourselves. We want to impress another person. But a lot of, you know, we're complicated human beings. We're complicated. And blind spots, of course, allow us to keep our self-esteem up. Um, there's a great quote from Anna Smith. I'm going to butcher it, but I'll give you the idea of it. He says, you know, Bolt is the surgeon who operates on, on himself. Uh, most of us don't want to apply the, the things we do to other people. We don't, <laughs> those are for other people. You know, look at ourselves honestly. I look at that. I look at you honestly. Myself, eh, not so much. Mm. So, that's it's very hard for us to see ourselves the way others see us. It's painful. We're flawed. We're self-interested. We're busy. We don't give people the full attention we often would say they deserve. Mm. And um, I think that's the essence of, in many ways, of being a, a, a grown-up, mm. is to be self-aware enough of your own limitations, your own blind spots. Credible thing, the list of them gets longer as you get older. Yeah. <laughs> You're not true. adding any. You're not adding any. You're just finding the ones you didn't see before. So true. Russ, one last question. I have to ask you this. It feels, you, you, in part, you're an ambassador for capitalism. Um, you believe it's the best of the systems. Uh, it creates prosperity. I know also you don't believe that money um, creates the best value in life, that you get value and uh, enjoyment from many other things. Uh, outside of money. But for you personally, I'm intrigued as an ambassador of capitalism and enjoying other parts of life. Why, why don't you want to make more money and enjoy other parts of life? I mean, why, why are you choosing to be an educator and not work as an economist at Goldman Sachs and still enjoy other parts of life? I don't think of myself as an ambassador for capitalism the way I used to. When I was younger, I thought capitalism is the best system. It's... Um, it leads to the most prosperity, as you suggested. And as I've gotten older, I mean, I like prosperity. It's better than the alternative. But I've become increasingly focused on worrying whether my focus on prosperity has blinded me to the other things that are not so easily measured, which I alluded to earlier. So I think the, you know, the life well lived is obviously about more than money. And I think ultimately our, our deepest sources of satisfaction come from what we do for others, are connecting with others in various enterprises, um, the work we do as in teams cooperatively, either at work or in volunteer work that we do. These are the things that keep, give us the deepest source of satisfaction, not our stuff. And so inevitably life's a trade-off. We like stuff. We like to earn some material, have some material success, but at what cost? And then we have to ask ourselves, you know, what, what do I give up to work 70 hours a week, 80 hours a week at, say, Goldman Sachs, which was often the case? Is that other stuff important, really important, somewhat important? And those are decisions we make as human beings. And uh, what I like about capitalism is it lets me make the – if I'm lucky and I've got the skills to choose, I can choose to have a little less stuff and a little more of some other forms of satisfaction that I might find meaningful. I, I really do believe that freedom, economic freedom, allows us to express ourselves more fully. But we do have to remember that's 
The money's not the goal. And that's not easy for us as human beings. We struggle with that tremendously. And I really think that the of all the things we've talked about today, the it's the rules of the game. They don't have to be, they have to be consistent with our nature. And Adam Smith said this beautifully in the theory of moral sentiments. He says, he talks about what he calls the man of system who thinks he can move around the pieces of society like the pieces on a chessboard and ignoring the fact that they have emotion all their own. That's a paraphrase, but it's a beautiful idea. So I don't think socialism works very well in practice outside the family, outside very small units. At the same time, I don't want to have a, a political system that lets um, other people exploit us through through mm. what looks mm. like capitalism, but it's actually crony capitalism. Russ, thank you so much for being with us today. There's an article by Chris Argerus called Why Smart People Don't Learn. I'd like to see that. I was taught about it because uh, I was in an organization where we were in a lot of conflict and we all had to read it over and over again. And and by the way, the answer to why smart people don't learn is they don't ask enough questions um, because they think they know everything. But I have to say that you have demonstrated the exact opposite. You're an example of how a smart person can learn. In this show, The Principle of Charity, uh, you have demonstrated a humility and ability to be humane, compassionate in, in the way you speak, in the way in things that you do. Tell us a little bit about where we, other, you know, some of our listeners can find your podcast or any of your work. So my podcast is e- Econ Talk, one word, Econ Talk. You can find it wherever uh, podcasts are heard. I'm on Twitter as Econ Talker. Uh, I have an account where I write essays in Medium, but not so many since I've become president of Shalem College in Jerusalem. I have a new book coming out in August called Wild Problems, A Guide to the Decisions that Define Us, which is about some of the things we've been talking about today, the role of rationality and the life well lived and uh, how we face our biggest challenges as human beings. And uh, written some other books. If you're interested, you can go to russroberts.info and find all my essays, podcasts, books, videos, and so on. Thank you so much. Thanks, Russ. It's been Thank a you. great conversation. Really appreciate it. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love you to leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really goes a long way to helping others discover our conversations. You can also find Principle of Charity on social media where we hope you'll join the discussion. See you soon. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.